The presenting sponsor of Behind the Beak is Down in Front Productions. DIFP is a video production company located in Birmingham, Alabama that strives to provide high-quality video services for your business or event at very competitive prices with a personal approach. They specialize in sporting events, weddings, and business videography, but also provide recording and video editing work for other events such as seminars, commercials, and concerts. Give Dustin and the crew a call at 205-588-0868 or visit them at difpbham.com. That's D-I-F-P-B-H-A-M.com to see how they can help you. Down in Front Productions, the presenting sponsor of Behind the Beat. Behind the Beat, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. Now, here's your host, Tyler Brown. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Behind the Beat, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. I'm Tyler Brown, and this is episode number 31 of the series. In this week's installment, I'll talk with former big leaguer and JSU baseball pitcher Donovan Hand. Later in the episode, we'll catch up with the now-retired hurler, talk about his time at Jacksonville State and his journey to the major leagues. That interview in just a bit, but first, a few housekeeping notes and some news. If you missed last week's episode, my guest was former basketball Gamecock Malcolm Drumright. I caught up with the Californian about his professional basketball career, and we revisited what might be the biggest game in JSU's Division I history, the win over Belmont in the semifinals of the 2017 OBC Championships. If you enjoyed the Eli Jenkins episode from a few weeks back, I think you'll really like Malcolm's episode. If you want to go give it a listen, all previous episodes of the podcast can be streamed at jsugamecocksports.com slash podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Also, a quick reminder that masks are and will continue to be required for all faculty, staff, and students and visitors throughout the JSU campus. Masks should always be worn properly and will be required indoors as well as outdoors when social distancing cannot be maintained. Signage has been placed in all buildings and areas indicating the mask requirements. Students and families are required to wear masks when visiting campus for tours and or attending orientation this summer. Please do your part in helping stop the spread of COVID-19. Please wear a mask. In JSU Athletics News, the department extended its partnership with Influencer. Influencer is a social media company that allows the communications office to quickly distribute photos and other content to student-athletes allowing them to share their pictures and graphics online with their friends, family, and fans. It was a big hit last season with our student-athletes, and you, as fans, can expect to see more content from your favorite Gamecocks on social media in the coming season. In football news, six Gamecocks were named to the league's preseason All-OVC team. Quarterback Zarek Cooper, offensive lineman Michael Shaddix, and tight end Trey Berry got the nod on the offensive team, while defensive end DJ Coleman, DB Yule Gowdy, and linebacker Zach Woodard were named to the defensive team. And on the volleyball court, Todd Garvey's squad received the 2019-2020 AVCA Team Academic Award. The award, which was initiated in the 1992-93 academic year, honors volleyball teams that maintain a year-long grade point average of 3.30 on a 4.0 scale or a 410 on a 5.0 scale. JSU boasted a 3.66 overall team GPA, 
led by 4.0s from Sadie Anderson, Claire Behan, Maddie Cloutier, Lena Kinderman, Lexi Libs, and Taylor Pribble. That's everything new happening around athletics, and now it's time for today's featured guest. Donovan Hand lettered three years for the Gamecocks, leading head coach Jim Case's pitching staff in wins all three seasons he wore a JSU uniform. After earning the top spot in the Jacksonville State Division I record book for wins and innings pitched, the right-hander was drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers in the 14th round of the 2007 MLB draft. Hand went on to play 11 seasons at the professional level, breaking into the bigs in 2013 with the Brew Crew. He also pitched for the Cincinnati Reds in 2015 before retiring from the New York Mets farm system in 2017. Here is this week's guest, the fifth Gamecock to reach the major leagues, Donovan Hand. Joined on the podcast today by former major league pitcher and Jacksonville State pitcher Donovan Hand. Donovan, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Glad to be on. Well, before we got started a few minutes ago, uh, you were outside, you were working, and, you know, this is something that uh, I think you've done often, especially when you were playing in the major leagues, when you were playing professionally. During the off season. a lot of guys will go play golf and some stuff like that, but uh, you used to go back to the farm, and right now you own a farm. Yeah, we're, uh, we own about a 220-acre, 28-acre farm we uh, bought in 2015, and waited till I retired to kind of start developing it. And so we've bought, we've uh, built four poultry houses and uh, carry about 106,000 chickens per flock and about 60 head of cattle getting ready to build a house here in September. So we're kind of in, uh, well, we are in rural Alabama. It's uh, we're the only, uh, I guess you would say speck of civil civilization on this road. It's a little County road. They've recently paved it. Thank goodness. But was a rock road to then. And uh, my wife and I, we, we absolutely adore it. We've we've the hustle and bustle of playing baseball and busy life. We uh we love getting away over here and gonna make it our home for hopefully many many years. How was that kind of your getaway when you were playing professional baseball? Because I know you uh, on your on your parents' farm. You know you were around horses, mules, yeah. cattle. You you were on a backhoe. You were on dozers constantly. Was there any was there ever any fear from the uh, major league teams that you might get injured out there doing something like that in the off season? Well, what they don't know don't hurt them. <laughs> uh, we didn't uh, we didn't broadcast that until uh, Kyle Berger. He was uh, with the Huntsville News Station, and uh, he he covered the Stars, and he wanted to do an off season feature since I was from Alabama, and so that was the first time it was ever covered. Obviously, my teammates and stuff knew that, but. Um, it, it was a way for me to decompress. We played so much, so hard, so intense, so focused for so many months and working towards a goal when it was over and either you met your goal or you didn't, or you were right there. Uh, it was a way for me to go home, reset, kind of reset my goals. I would write on the plane ride home or the drive home every season up until the year I retired, I would write down my goals for the next year. And I put them away in my baseball stuff that I didn't touch for a month, six weeks. And when I got, ready to start working out whatever i was doing baseball wise for the off season i would pull that notebook out and that was my goal but until then it was anything but baseball and I, you know i love the game but anything you love you need a break from every now and then and that was my way it was a weird way guys didn't get it um i've said that before but uh it was my way of getting away from the hustle and bustle of all summer and and just give my body a break too you played at Jacksonville State from 2005 to 2007, had a fantastic career before 
getting drafted by the Brewers. Tell me about your recruiting and how Coach Case found you and what made you fall in love with Jacksonville State and say, this is where I'm going to school. Well, first and foremost, I owe everything in my career to Jacksonville State. Um, It really put me on the map to have a career in baseball. I told my dad when I was six years old that I would play on TV one day. I was running around the living room and probably my underwear and a Yankees t-shirt and watching Kurt Gibson go around second base pumping his, you know, pumping his arm. And that's who I wanted to be. Um, did I ever think that would come true? Ah, maybe not. But as things started to evolve, my junior year of, uh, of high school, Hatton high school, I went to the Alabama coach association tryouts. Um, well, showcase, not tryout showcase, but it was kind of a tryout in a way. Coach Case was there along with some a lot of junior college coaches. That's where I was first. Coach Case first seen me. I'm sure you could ask him to to this day, and he can remember that day in in the uh, Joe Davis Stadium. But uh, that was that's where it kind of started. So I made out of that showcase. They took the top 25, and they took the top 25 from four regions of Alabama. We went to Birmingham to UAB, actually Birmingham. Yeah, I think it was UAB and played the northern region, the southern region, the east and the west. We played each other. Well, out of that, 100, the Super 100, they called it, they took the top 25 out of it to go play Team USA and Team Canada over in Georgia. Joe Mason, who was a scout for the Brewers at the time, that drafted me, and Chet Atkins was the head coach of that. Coach Case followed me through the, that entire thing. We went over there, got rained out one day, but got to play Team USA. That's where I finally realized, hey, I'm – I might be good enough to do something here. So Coach K started recruiting me. The first day, um, I guess it was my junior year that summer, the first day you could be in home visits. He was in my parents' home. He sat down with us and offered me a scholarship. Well, it being the first day, I didn't know know what to do. This was a big deal. A kid from a two-way school with a Division One baseball scholarship offer, you know, you think jump on it. Well, my parents were – I guess more level-headed than me, let's wait. Let's see what happens. You know, you might get some more. We wanted the Alabama, the Auburn, not really Auburn, but Alabama, those those SEC schools. My dad thought I was SEC ready. Well, that rocked on for a little bit. Coach Case was still in contact, blah, blah, blah. I went to a showcase at Alabama. They told me I wasn't good enough. Got home, told mom and dad, I want to go to Jacksonville State. That's where I want to be. They said, okay, son, well, this is your decision. You call Coach Case and tell him. I've never – I don't know if i ever told anybody publicly this, but I called Coach Case. said, Coach, I'm ready to sign. He said, well, I'm glad to hear that. The only problem is we gave you a scholarship to somewhere else, mm. somebody else. I said, oh, really? Broke out into tears. He didn't know that because I was on the phone. But broke out into tears, thought, well, there was my opportunity. Well, that rocks on. He, that, he left it at that. That was it. He had, he had got wind that went to Alabama. He thought I was signing with somebody else. He moved on. Um, I ended up signing with Northwest Shoals Community College about 20 minutes from home. Not happy about it. Told him when I signed, if an SEC school or Jacksonville State offers me, I will sign with them. We rock on. We go deep in the playoffs that year in, in baseball. And coach comes to watch me at uh, Westbrook Christian. I hit, I hit a homer, two doubles, went seven give it one run, you know, second round of the playoffs. He goes back and tells Coach Gillespie, who was there then, Coach, we've got to offer this kid a scholarship. We've got to have him at JSU. So um, he ends up offering me more than the first time, believe it or not, which was awesome. 
but uh, he offers me. I signed immediately. Told my mom and dad, I'm not waiting this time. I'm signing. Called Northwest Shows. The guy was living. Him and Coach Case had a little some words about it. <laughs> um, you know, kind of made it a soap opera in a way. But uh, so that's kind of that's the long version of how I got to Jacksonville State. And even though you only played three seasons at Jacksonville State, you had some impressive numbers. Uh, you look at your wins. You had 26, which is first in Jacksonville State's Division One history, second all time. You led the Gamecocks in wins all three seasons, twice in ERA, and you tied for seventh for wins in a single season with 10 at one point. But I think the thing that stands out the most is your number of innings pitched. You have the record for the longest single game innings pitched uh, which was 10 against Murray State and then you had the most innings pitched in a career at 289 and two-thirds and so you know tell me about your longevity and what it meant to be a pitcher that just like that Murray State game you go 10 innings uh, I don't know how many pitches you threw that game you might remember but what did it mean to about 123 and, and that's you know and this was a question I asked Todd Jones Todd Jones threw about 160 pitches in a game I think is what he said a couple of weeks ago but you know, if mm-hmm. he did that with Rudy Abbott, and he said, you know, if a scout heard that you'd thrown 160 pitches in a oh. game, they said, you know, that they had thrown Rudy Abbott in jail for that one. But what did it mean yep. to be that longevity guy? And when you're in the middle of a battle against a conference foe like Murray State, that Coach Case says, you know what, he can handle 10 innings. Yeah, well, looking back after the, my whole career has been finished. Um, it was just I went as hard as I could for as long as I could, and I was in give a credit to uh, the strength and conditioning program, Coach Case and his regiment of workouts. But, you know, when I took the ball, it was mine until the end, and Coach Case had to pry it out of my hand if he took me out. And uh, he knew that, and I knew that, and uh, it just kind of the way it went. But it was never a goal of mine to set in. Who wants an innings record? Nobody cares about that, really. But it was a thing that as my career progressed, that was my goal. Every time I wanted to finish the game, we had an outstanding closer my sophomore year. And we had a closer back to meeting my freshman year kind of, but I, you know, I hit a hundred innings my, my sophomore and junior year. And it was just, I wanted the baseball and I I knew I figured out that I was the guy that could give us the best chance to win at that time. And I wanted it until he, (laughs) he made me come out. The 10-inning game with Murray, that how this happened, we had to win that game to make the OVC tournament or be second seed. I can't remember which one. I think it was to make the tournament. And we rolled in. It was supposed to be a seven-inning game. That was my junior year, I think. Coach Case had put me in the seven-inning game because I could go the whole thing, and that was it. You know, We didn't have to worry about using anybody on that doubleheader day. And he told me before the game, he said, this is this is it. We got to have this game to, to. I think it was to get in, and so that was on my mind the entire game. As the game progressed, it left my mind. But we end up in a two-two tie, I think, in the seventh, and it rocked on to the tenth. And Andrew Edge was my catcher, and he was my he was the guy that caught me about every game that year. He was the doubleheader. He was my guy, and uh, I forget. I think Jake Ball hit a. Hit a double, we bond him over, and he scored in the top of the tenth. Well, here we go. I got to, I got to get them in the bottom of the tenth. Well, I strike out the first guy. Next guy fly out something. Second pitch to the next guy. I mean, I was throwing six and seven pitch innings from the eighth, ninth, and tenth. It was just, I had my game plan, and they couldn't figure it out. 
I'll never forget it. A ground ball hit the Jake at third, and I was praying to God. I didn't bring God into many baseball games, but I prayed to God. I said, Jake, just make the throw. I can't go any longer. And I think I threw 123 or 132 pitches, one of the one of the other. And we won, got an OVC tournament. And Coach Case told me, he said, you had no idea how big that game was. I said, Coach, how long would you let me go? He said, well, as long as I would have needed to, probably. <laughs> and so that was uh, that was probably the the one moment that stands out. Of course, going to the regional that year also stands out. But that was a that was a big that was a personal thing. But it more 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 or less it was team because we had that we had to have the game and. And to come up big for your team, that's anybody's dream. You're a three-time All-OVC selection. You win the two OVC titles with the Gamecocks. In 2005, it was the regular season crown. Uh, that one came to an end in the tournament to Austin P. And then in 2006, you turn around and finish second in the conference, but you roll through the OVC tournament and end up going to the uh, Tuscaloosa Regional. And that particular OVC tournament, was very exciting because you you have to play Sanford twice. Comes down mm-hmm. to the last day, it's an eight seven win. What do you remember yeah. about that? Yeah, coming back on the, I think I started against. I think I started against Eastern Kentucky. Two days before that, and I went seven or eight. I think we kind of run away with it towards the end, and he took me out. And he explained to me, that's the only way I'd come out, but he, he explained to me why that we kind of had the game at hand and might need me later. So I was good with that. And so we went to Sanford. They kind of throttled us the first game of the, the two-game set there. And we come back, and I think, I want to say Tony Drinkard might have started. And I told Coach, I said, I'm good. I'm ready to go. I was long tossing the next day, you know, the day before. I'm, I said, I'm ready. Well, you're not going to start. Well, all right, whatever. So I was ready the whole game, and he put me in about the third or fourth, and I think it was seven to two or six to two when I come in, and I just gritted through four or five innings, and we got to the end, and I can't remember who hit the walk off, um, but it was a walk off win. Clay Whittemore. Clay Whittemore. Okay, that's it. Well, yeah. So double to right center, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But anyway, um, so it was a. It was surreal because we had dreamed about a read. That was our goal. When we, you know, I talked about goals earlier. When we set our goals preseason, that was our goal to get to a regional. And then now, looking back at it, now that we got kind of broke the regional thing those couple years, now their goal is to win in a regional. So, you know, looking over a program's history since you've been there, to see you evolve, see it evolve from let's get to a regional to now let's make it to a super regional is is pretty incredible. Being a former player. That particular season, you go to Tuscaloosa, and you get the chance to play against a team that you had hoped to be recruited by. You get pinned against number four Alabama in that regional. Mm-hmm. And Coach Case, before we got started, was talking to him about that, and he said, you know, that he thought that that was a good matchup. He said, you know, we're going to throw Donovan. I think he's got a really good chance, and you're going up against mm-hmm. a eventual major league player in Wade LeBlanc on the other mound. And th- the unfortunate thing about that game is – you guys have a lot of weather, a lot of rain, and it's about yeah. 11 o'clock before you get that game started. So what what did that do to you guys? Because you don't have a locker room, and you're, you're kind of yeah. having to hang out and just wait for that game to start. What did that do to you guys? Uh, I think it was a lot of anticipation. I'm not saying we, if we had started on time that we would have beat them, but I think it took a lot of our edge off. We were nervous. As, I, I can remember being nervous. A lot of my home, well, 90% of my hometown was there. And 
course, all Alabama fans, but they were JSU fans that night. And I can remember that was my, you know, I wasn't good enough to go there. I'm going to show you how good I am. And as that kind of rocked on, I think it was supposed to be a 7 o'clock start, maybe a, maybe 7.30. Of course, the game before us was playing, but 7.30 start. I went out and warmed up a little bit, and then the rain started. And uh, I'll never forget going back out. It was 10.45, 11, like you said. And the edge was kind of just kind of off and didn't – because the routine was off, hadn't dealt with – I was still young. I was 20 years old and just didn't know how to cope with all those things mentally more or less than phys- – physically, it was there. It was there all night. Mentally, it was not there and uh, just kind of took our edge off. We come out – we scored one or two in the first. I think we scored – we ended up getting beat 11 to one, I think. But uh, we scored one in the first or second. Felt like we were there. I didn't give up anything for about two or three innings. And then kind of what they – what I was doing, they adapted to. That was the difference in a little more kind of big boy baseball. They adapted to what I was doing, and I, I didn't know – I didn't really know how to change it at the time. And – Stuff just kind of got – we made a couple errors, which happens. You know, it's a big game and uh, probably the biggest crowd any of us had played in front of at that time. But we held our own for a long time against the number four team in the nation. And uh, it it was just – it was a special night. I hate it didn't go better than it was or better than it did, but it was a special night just to get there. That was our goal that year to get to a regional. We'd done it. And then we get beat by Southern Miss the second game and get put out. But uh, just – just a good moment for the program at the time. You achieve your goal. You make it to the regional that year, 2007. Yeah. You finish up your career, and then you get a call in the 14th round. You've been selected by the Milwaukee Brewers in the 2007 mm-hmm. MLB Amateur Draft. What did it mean to get that call and to be drafted by the Brewers? Kind of a one of pinch me moments. I was sitting there with my family, my dad and my mom, my brother, my younger brother. And uh, my name come across the computer the first day. That was the first year they done the first round on the on TV. They broadcasted the first round, so we watched it. Obviously, I didn't. I knew I wasn't going in the first round, but and then the second day, they done it via the internet, whatever that kind of thing. So I'm watching it and gets to the Nationals. had told me they were going to take me in the seventh. Well, Joe Mason, back to my junior year of high school, Team USA, all that. Joe Mason was a scout for the Brewers. I hadn't heard from them. He'd come and done the um, intelligence test is what they call it now, but it was a different – at Jacksonville State, and I had no idea what I was doing. But he just said, hey, I want to give you some test stuff. He was at JSU a lot. And uh, he was a scout for the Brewers. He calls me that morning and said, hey, we're going to take you either in the 11th or the 14th today. You want to sign – you going to sign? And I said, well, yeah. I said, unless you don't give me any money. <laughs> and so, Joe, he said, well, we'll figure that out. Just, just know we're going to take you today. I said, all right, great. So I'm looking at the 11th. You know, I'm a kid still and still looking at the 11th round. The 11th round goes by nothing. I'm like, the Brewers pick nothing. I'm like, what in the world? So the 14th round comes around and 432nd, I think, overall. And uh, the Brewers take my name goes up on the screen. I'm pretty sure my dad probably cried, which he didn't happen very often. But just one of those moments that, again, it was a goal that we had worked for and and finally achieved it. Now I had a decision to make whether to go back to Jacksonville State for my senior year or go professional. So there comes that decision. Of course, Coach Case calls me, and, uh, you know, he he wanted me to stay like anybody, I'm sure. And I wanted to stay in a way, but I knew this was my opportunity to go and see what happens. 
and didn't know if I'd get it again. I'd talked to a lot of people, didn't have an agent, didn't think I needed one. And talked to a lot of people that, you know, you go back to your senior year, you take a line drive off the knee, the elbow, or something happens, well, you know, then you're done. And so I just wanted to, I just wanted to go and see what happened. That was my lifelong dream to do. And uh, it worked out for the best in the end, but it was a tough decision to leave JSU at that time. We had a big freshman class coming in. Ben Toodle was one of them, another power arm. And we were really loading up to be really good. And I left. Coach Case many times said, if you'd have stayed, we'd have made the Super Regional. But, you know, I don't know that. Nobody knows it. But that was just a personal – one of them – you've been so team-oriented so long, it was hard to make that decision. But we went – you break into pro ball in 2007. You get sent to Helena for rookie league. And then uh, mm-hmm. a little later that season, you get sent to uh, West Virginia, the power up in Charleston, uh, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. 2008, Huntsville, Brevard County. 2009, you're back in Huntsville again. In 2010, yep. you're Huntsville. Then you get the call up to Nashville. And you spend some time in the minor leagues. And, you know, you mm-hmm. you, you finally make it to the majors in 2013 but from 2007 to that early season in 2013 what were you kind of thinking you know that you've you you spent a lot of time in the minors you I think at one point you were in the career list for most games played with the Nashville Sounds at AAA yeah what did it mean to mm-hmm. be in the minors for so long and then finally get that call to go up to the major leagues well I really didn't know what to think I kind of just kept my head down and, and kept going didn't didn't look up much other than I knew I had a goal still. I've seen a lot of guys around me going to where I wanted to be. But, again, I wrote down goals every year, most of them attainable. And I, I kind of stuck to those. But my my progress through the minor leagues early was quick. I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm on my way. And then I get hurt in 09. It kind of slowed me down some. And they wanted me to be a starter so bad, I just was not a starter at the time. And it's still my whole career was that way. I if they'd have just left me in the bullpen from, say, 2010 on, I'd have probably made it in 11 or 12, uh, maybe a year or two ahead of time. But I was a starter bill, four pitches, good control, good command, decent velocity. just didn't work. But um, 2013 spring training, I'm at home doing something, doing nothing probably, and I get a call from the assistant GM. Hey, kids, you're going to Major League Spring Training. And I had done an article – at the end of 2012 season with uh, the Tennessee and I think in Nashville, and they were talking about the, so all the same things you did. Hey, you've been here a while. You put up really good numbers. You made an all-star team two or three times, you know, what's holding you back. And I didn't know. And I still didn't still don't know to this day, but I made a comment in there and it was, and the reason I say this, it was brought up later on, but, I made a comment that said, if they'll just give me a chance, if I can't do it, I'm willing to walk away. But if I can, I really think I could help them. Talking about the big league club. And the assistant GM, a couple years later, brought that up again. I don't know if that had some bearing. Like, a, like almost I called them out in a way. But 2013 spring training, I go, I'm the last cut. I mean, I was just, I mean, uh, real close to making the team. They took a guy through 97 instead of 93. And uh didn't make the team was told to go to nashville keep my head down do what i've been doing you'll be up here as soon as as soon as we need somebody did i believe that they just told me that two or three years before that too but i give up one run in like 18 innings of spring training led spring training in innings the whole i mean just 
just had that special spring training. And May the 27th that year, May the 26th, pitching coach comes down. I'm in Nashville, and I threw the night before, which is weird for me to throw back to back. He said, hey, I need you to get up. Throw a bullpen, work on your quick move, blah, 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 this, blah, 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 that. I'm like, well, this is odd. He said, if I go out to the mound, you get it going real quick. And so I had no idea what was going on, kind of that tunnel vision moment. Well, everybody around me, all my bullpen mates, they had they knew what was going. They knew I was getting called up, and so the pitching coach, the way it works out, the starter got in trouble. He had to go out and give him a break, and he's he's going out. He's doing like the the LeBron push down, like no, 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 don't get up and throw. <laughs> and all he was doing was getting me a little work off the mound before I went the next day. And then the manager after the game called me in. You're going to the big leagues. Uh, my parents was there. Of course, my wife was there and a couple family members that came up to watch. And uh, one of my teammates, a close friend of mine, Tim Dillard, who's a lifelong, he owns the record for Nashville Sounds. But he uh, he had told my dad and, and parents and stuff that to hang around, I was going to the big leagues. He knew what was going on. I did. He had been in the big leagues three or four times before me. So uh, thankful for him to do that. But they hung around, got to share the news with them. Me and my wife flew out the next morning. And uh, I got to the stadium about 10 o'clock, got in the hotel, got to the stadium about 10. We had a 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock game, and at 2.30 here, they called my name. So didn't have a lot of time to think about it, what was going on. I'd been to Milwaukee a, a few times and pitched and exhibition games and some prospect games. but So it wasn't a big shock, but it's, a big, it's, it's different when there's 42,000 in the stands. Getting the family up there for your what would eventually be your major league debut, that was a little bit of a debacle, wasn't it? It was. It was. So my parents were in Nashville. My younger brother was at home in, in Hatton. So they drive two and a half hours home, pick him up, and drive however long, 10 hours, nine hours to Milwaukee and get to share my debut with me. They got there about 12 o'clock, I believe, because it, it was 10 o'clock by the time I told them. They drove home, then drove the nine or 10 hours up to Milwaukee. But they made it, so they got their claim to fame on – on TV, they showed them, done a lot of interview and that kind of thing with my parents. So it was a special moment for everybody. I I am glad they got to enjoy it with me because without them, obviously, I wouldn't have been there anyway. You made your major league debut May 26, 2013 against Pittsburgh. You throw two innings, give up just three hits, strike out three, walk one, and only give up one earned run. And they really kind of threw you right into the fire. Do you remember who your first major league at bat was against? And- Andrew McCutcheon, the MVP that year. I didn't throw many four-seam fastballs, but I was so nervous. I was like, there's no way I can control this sinker right now. There's no way. And I threw a four-seam fastball about 93 miles an hour right down the middle to the eventually MVP, and he fouled it straight back off the catcher, off the umpire, and he looked at me like, hey, kid, don't throw that one again. So I stuck with the two-seamers after that. But, yeah, it was – I thought, man, it was – for your debut to face somebody of that magnitude was pretty special. McCutcheon does get a single off of you, but you settle mm-hmm. in after that, and you you eventually come back around to McCutcheon again in the yeah. in the later innings. You get him to pop up to shortstop, and that was actually the last mm-hmm. out of that outing in the uh, top of the sixth inning. But you know, just mm-hmm. going back to that first start and getting the call out of the bullpen and pitching against guys like that, you know, you've got. Yeah. Andrew McCutcheon, Neil Walker, Sterling Marte, Brendan Inge. Uh, talk about what it meant to go in and face a lineup like that and be as successful as you was in your debut. It was kind of that moment, hey, you're good enough to do this. you know. And that's what I had wanted for so long, for three or four years. I mean, I wouldn't say for the whole six years before I got there, but 
uh, when I got to the upper minor leagues, that's the moment I wanted. I'd face those guys in spring training. They'd come over and take minor league at bats, or I'd get to go over and pitch in the big league games. And I had had quite not just dominated, but success against guys of that magnitude. And I knew it was spring training, but I, but I also knew that that those were big league hitters. And so I wanted that moment in that season to face them when they're at their best and I'm at my best. I want to face you and see what we got. And so to, you know, I give up a run, big deal, you know. But I strike out three, a lot of weak contact, and guys just threw out the lineup that, you know, I think they made the playoffs that year. And that was kind of, hey, you can do this kind of kind of moment. If it had went the other way, if I'd give up 10 in an inning, I don't know what, what the rest of the career would have been like. But to give up one on basically no sleep and and kind of the way the game, the starter got knocked out in the fourth and it was kind of an ugly game and kind of got it back in to give us a chance mode and, it was just, hey, you can do this. Let's, let's. I'm ready for the next one now. So, it was a good start to the career. Just a few days later, you make your first start at the major league level. That was against Atlanta mm-hmm. up in Milwaukee on June 22nd, 2013. And that mm-hmm. night, Jim Case and Greg Sice fly up to Milwaukee, and Coach Case said that you came over to their hotel room and you guys spent hours mm-hmm. up just talking and. So what was oh, yeah. what was that conversation like? What were the three of you talking about, you know, the night before this monumental day? Well, it kind of started out as couldn't believe it that we were all three in the same place for what tomorrow beheld. It was a big moment for me, obviously, but for Coach Case, I think it was as big a moment to see one of his former guys start against a team we all grew up loving. I mean, if you're in the South, you're an Atlanta Braves fan. Um and then Sites, he had – Greg Sites had been a very, very close friend. Even at college, he was kind of, I guess you would say, a, a dad in a way. We'd go over and hang out with him. He had all the fancy electronics. You know how Sites is. <laughs> and he had, it, you know, everything we needed. And so we'd go over and hang out, maybe eat dinner, whatever it was. And he done an outstanding job with us getting our information there to our parents or whatever it was. And so for those two guys to be there, obviously there's a lot more people. Josh was a special, you know, if he could have came, I know he would have. And, but to be sitting in Milwaukee in that hotel room, um, just talking baseball with a guy that made me into the picture that I was, without him, I probably wouldn't have been at that moment. So, And to see the joy on his face, that was the most amazing thing because Coach Case was a very stern but loving guy at Jacksonville State. And but we got the business mode all the time. Just so see, to see him in a relaxed, excited, just he was full of joy. He, he but he was still a coach. He said, he said, Donovan, you got to go get your butt in the bed. He said, you got to start tomorrow. I said, Coach, I'll be there at like ten or eleven o'clock. He said, I don't care. We're keeping you up. I said, Coach, it's no big deal. And so the next day, you know, to see see them buying Milwaukee Brewers gear and and sitting with my wife and enjoying those moments was pretty special. And to be fair, you probably got more sleep that night than you did the uh, night of your debut. Oh, there's no doubt. We caught a 4 a.m. flight, and of course I wasn't sleeping. I had finally achieved a dream that I had longed for for so long. So That June 22nd night, you go four and two-thirds. The Brewers pick up the win, 2 nothing over the Atlanta Braves. You gave up just two hits. You walked one, struck out three, but you exit just an out before being able to register for the win. What happened there? Thank God they took me out because I don't know that I could have <laughs> threw another pitch. It was um, so much adrenaline went into that, and I had not went four and two-thirds or five innings in 
I couldn't tell you when it has. I think I threw 63 pitches and it felt like I threw 163. It was a moment that was so much hype into it for me personally that I couldn't, I couldn't go anymore. And, and to be locked in for so long to, uh, to a team that I grew up watching and a lot of guys that, you know, I watched for a long time. It was, a it was a good thing. They took me out there. I wish I could have got one more out, but this wasn't happening. You pitched up against the Cubs uh, just uh, four days later in a relief appearance, and then on June 29th, you make your first road start against, again, Pittsburgh is who you're having to face, mm-hmm. and you pick up your first hit in that game. You get a base hit right side off of Francisco Liriano. How well do you remember that at bat? Pretty well, because he was uh, he was in the running for the Cy Young that year, and actually – Ironically, my high school baseball coach, Brent Gillespie, and then a, uh, a former teammate of mine at Hatton had driven, or driven from, from Hatton to, to Pittsburgh that day to, to watch it. And, uh, of course, I was a pretty good hitter in, in high school. But at the time, it, uh, I was not such a good hitter. So it was, uh, it was a good moment. I want to back up just a minute. The way that start, that first start against Atlanta happened, I hadn't thrown in about four days, and I went to the bullpen just to throw a little touch and feel off the mound to make sure I didn't lose what I was doing. And uh, the pitching coach said, when's the last time you started? And I said, 2010 and AA. He said, okay. I didn't think nothing more about it. The manager comes to me during BP that day. He said, hey, kid, what do you think about starting in about three days against Atlanta? And I said, I hadn't thought much about it. And he said, well, you're starting. He walks off and leaves. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? I hadn't started since 2010 in AA against probably the Lookouts and a bunch of those teams. And that's uh, now all of a sudden I'm starting against Atlanta, the team that, you know, that was so awesome growing up watching. So one of those deals. Going back to uh, that first hit against Pittsburgh, Kyle Loesch looked like he was up to no good whenever they threw the ball over to the dugout to him. Uh, Did you get fooled by the oldest trick in the book? No, the problem is I was a starter, so I knew what was going on. I'd seen him do it to two or three other rookies, too. So <laughs> I knew what was going on, was not worried about that. Um, still have that baseball today. It's got a authenticity sign on it, and, you know, everything's it's a special moment. But, you know, Liriano, that at bat, he had me like one-two or something. And instead of just throwing a fastball right by me, he throws me a little breaking ball, and I basically throw my bat at at it. And uh, and I think Garrett Jones in right field, matter of fact, picked it up with his bare hand by the time it got to him. So I wouldn't say it was a screaming line drive, but it looks like it in the book. So it was my first hit and the only one. So I'm glad, glad I got a hit. You spent 2014 in Nashville. 2015, you were with the Louisville Bass AAA team for the Cincinnati Reds. You get the call up to Cincinnati. And then after that season, you spent one season in China and then you spent another season mm-hmm. in Venezuela. Actually, you were you were in Venezuela for two seasons. You you did that again back mm-hmm. in 2012, 2013, and then uh, you were independent ball in Somerset. And so after you appear in Cincinnati, you get one game in Cincinnati. You get sent back to the minors, and you play some independent ball and you play some professional ball overseas. Tell me about that journey and what it meant to kind of get back. And in 2017, you get the sign minor league deal with the New York Mets. Yeah, 2015 was uh, the first time I was under out from under Brewers' control uh, after spending seven, basically eight years with them. And 
I, I felt like I needed a fresh atmosphere. Come off a pretty good season in the big leagues in 13. Didn't get a chance in 14. Made a triple-A all-star team as a closer, which I had never done. That was my knock on – the knock the Brewers had on me. I didn't throw – I didn't throw late enough in games. I couldn't be a setup guy or a closer. That's what they wanted me to be. So – I go to AAA in 14. I'm the closer. So I say I'm the setup guy. I got like 13 holes, and then the closer gets called up, and so I become the closer. I save seven or eight games, whatever it was, and then the all-star break, they want to make me a starter again, and I kind of revolted and just said, hey, I'm not going to 80 or 90 pitches. I don't want to hurt myself. So that year was the utility pitcher role. I had seven starts, seven saves, 13 holes, and – just felt like I needed a fresh atmosphere. Talking to my agent, many coaches that I've come really close to, they felt like it was better for me to go somewhere else. And so I signed with Cincinnati. Got called up out of the blue. Somebody got two or three guys got hurt in one game against Detroit, and they needed some arms. And it was my start day the next day, I think. And so they called me up. I get in two days later against uh, Detroit in extra innings, go three scoreless, strike out five or four or five. I don't remember what it was. I thought, man, here's my second chance. I'll get a chance. And Marlon Bird miraculously comes back from a broken wrist in 10 days. And the next year he gets busted for steroids. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it or what, but I always blame it on Marlon Bird. <laughs> I get sent down and, and, and never never really called back up, never really a chance again. And, and so after 15, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was mad at the game. Didn't know, didn't, didn't really know. Didn't have a lot of good offers. The Braves had offered me a, a low pay minor league job. The Brewers had offered me back. Cincinnati didn't really want me back. I'd had surgery, uh, clean up my elbow after the 15 season. So I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and my agent at the time, Adam Hubble had kind of, he kind of mentioned it. Hey, let's, let's take a trip overseas and let's see if we can make some money. I said, okay, well, you know, give me some insight on it. He sends me a bunch of articles and I'm reading up on it. Talked to some guys that's been over there really didn't know. And so I wanted to go to Korea but end up going to Taiwan, and it was a uh, it was a great experience. The baseball is a hundred and seventy thousand percent difference than American baseball, but loved it. My daughter, and my wife got to come over and uh, see see Taiwan, and it was good. But just wasn't for me at the time. So it was kind of like one of those deals. I had pushed for it so long, and the good Lord finally said, "All right, I'm gonna show you. You don't need this." And uh, he showed me. He showed me in about three months. I didn't need it. So I spent three months there come home didn't really know what was next had four or five teams interested in signing me but nothing was really happening quick in the middle of the season you need to be throwing you need to be competing to keep yourself ready and so I had a good friend I played with in Venezuela a couple times playing an independent ball at Somerset New Jersey and that was the premier indie ball league and the premier team so I went up there and played finished out the season there had numerous times thought I was going to get signed back into pro ball didn't work out so didn't Nothing happened, so I come home for the offseason and go to Venezuela just to get some more innings and and make a little bit of money, to be honest with you. So didn't really know where anything was headed. My new agent, weird how it all happened, had got me a workout with the New York Mets. So I drive down, and actually I posted on the way on Twitter for love of the game. I drove 12 hours to a workout, not knowing if I'm going to get signed or not. My wife was 100% behind me and pushed me to do it. And Coach Case actually called. He said, what's going on? I said, what do you mean, coach? I said, I'm driving to a workout. He said, well, I've seen you posted for love of the game. I said, yeah, just it is. It's for love of the game. I don't I don't want to give it up this quick. And we talked on for a while and ended up going down there and throw through as good as I could throw during the workout. And 
I'd made it about halfway home. They said they didn't know what they wanted to do to, for me to drive on home, and, and uh, they thought they would sign me but didn't want to do anything for a day or so. So I was at home waiting on a call, and the next morning, I got home whatever time that night late. The next morning, I'm out checking some cattle, different things, and uh, GM calls me. and said, hey, we're going to sign you. I said, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? He said, well, we want you in, in Port St. Lucie tomorrow. I said, can you give me two days? I said, I have a wife and a daughter. I said, let me get everything settled here, and I'll be there. He said, take your time. It'll be waiting for you when you get here. Send me all the contract details. and We sign them, send them over, and I'm in Port St. Lucie two days later and have a really good spring training. Didn't even throw a bullpen yet and get to go over to Big League Camp and throw for them and a couple of guys I'd played with before and a couple of coaches were pumped I was there. I thought I had another chance to make it to the Big Leagues, but – didn't work out that year, so I spent triple A. Spent uh, that year in Triple A Las Vegas and Double A Binghamton, and uh, really was a good kind of ending year. Kind of told me that that it was time to time to hang them up. You retire after the 27, 2017 season. You're thirty one years old. You've had two years in the majors, ten seasons in the minors. You've played overseas for two years, one year independent ball. So you play eleven seasons overall. the The game allowed you to see a lot of the world. You got to live in a lot of different places. Among all of those different places you got to visit throughout the minors and majors, did you have a favorite stop along the way? You know, I've been asked that question quite a bit. They're all my favorite. To be a kid come from a small two-way school to Jacksonville State to pro ball, it was just awesome to see them all doing, doing I guess, in a weird way, it was all paid for. So it was all a vacation in a way. And uh, so I, Milwaukee will always be a special place for me because that's the first time I stepped on a major league field. And also my dad and brother stepped on that same field. I took them out in the outfield and made them close their eyes, blindfold and whatever. And I took them to dead center field where the center fielder plays. And I said, all right, now look straight up and do a circle. And the look in those, those two sets of eyes will never leave me until I die. And uh, it was special. So Milwaukee will always be special. But uh, my wife got to go on a trip to San Francisco, Seattle, and Texas with me. Uh, my daughter got to see me throw in Cincinnati. Countless, you know, Coach K sees me throw against Atlanta. Coach Gillespie, uh, who is my high school coach, gets me see me throw in, in Pittsburgh and family members, Arizona, just, I mean, just wherever. So a lot of places are special. Milwaukee's probably a little above all of them just because that's where I made finally the breakthrough. But all of them pretty special. Every 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 stop has a, a little special memory from it. And we were talking before about some of the names that you got to play alongside with, you know, when it came from minor league ball all the way up to the majors. Uh, and you look at, you know, some of the fantastic pitchers that you were around that might have had an influence on you. Giovanni Gallardo. Obviously, a fantastic pitcher with the Milwaukee Brewers, a starter who you came on in relief of yep. your, your first appearance. And then you mentioned LaTroy Hawkins, who you said was a fantastic guy. Yeah, he was uh, – Giovanni was special. Um, <laughs> funny tidbit on him, not so serious. But um, we were on a plane ride home one time, and, and I kind of got – I'd been there a few months, whatever, made a little bit of money. I was wanting me a nice watch to wear with a suit. We had to wear a suit and stuff on the plane. I was wanting kind of a nice watch to wear. And we were in the back of the plane shooting the ball. And he just, he had his uh, left hand over the seat behind me. And I've seen his watch. I'm like, yo, 
that's a that's a nice watch. I said, how much uh, like how much something like that run? He's like, oh, you mean this one? He said, ah, ten, twelve thousand dollars. I said, what? Ten or twelve grand for a watch? He said, yeah, but look at these other five in this watch box I got here. And so I, right, you know, it was always I felt pretty good about myself. And then I'd get humbled very quickly, and uh, so I, I knew I was in a different level. But Yo was a he was a good one. He was a he was one of a kind. And then Latroy Hawkins, you mentioned him. He uh, the first time I met Latroy was in spring training, and he was like a kid in a ball and he was a 13 or 14 year old veteran then many many achievements all-star games many many teams he had played for but it's like me and you talking here he just this way he was he would listen or he'd talk and he'd tell you hey kids shut up listen to this and you know he would he would come on rehab stance i think it was 12 he was with us and he'd come on rehab stance in the minor leagues he was battling a little shoulder impingement different stuff and you know, most big league guys that come on, they'll come come out, throw the first inning, or especially a relief guy, throw one or two innings, and then they bounce. They do their rehab stuff, and they get in the shower, and they go back to the hotel, their fancy hotel, and go on. But Latroy was different. He would stay around and watch the rest of the game. He would do his rotator cuff and his rehab stuff with the rest of the pitchers that threw the game while he was talking them through what happened in the game. So not only he stay and watch and, and devote his time, he was helping mentor – the future and and that that sounds easy but he's mentoring the guys that are trying to take his job in the big leagues you know it's a it's it was a cutthroat world but he had figured out he knew he was good enough and knew he was established enough he wanted the game of baseball to continue and be better if he could make a little help with it and so another thing was guys would leave you know on, on the days they wouldn't throw big league guys and they come down they would they wouldn't show up they'd show up for throwing program batting practice and they'd leave Latroy put on his we had to wear our pants up in triple a that year for some weird reason <laughs> he'd put on his minor league pants pull them up to his knee like old school he'd come out and sit in the bullpen for seven eight innings with us he wouldn't stay all nine usually he'd usually leave he'd say i gotta go facetime my kids or something and you know that was understandable but he would come out and he'd just sit with us, talk with us, walk down the dugout, just be one of us. And, and it made us, made us feel special that somebody of his magnitude, a 13 or 14 year old veteran would, would hang around and, and try to help us get where he was and, and where we wanted to be. So he was, uh, he was one of a kind baseball would be a very good place and baseball is a very good place, but it'd be even better if guys were like him more often. When I worked with the Dodgers, it was always tradition that whoever the major leaguer that was making the rehab start, it was tradition that they bought the post-game spread. And I remember in AA, uh, Clayton Kershaw came back for a rehab start, and he bought the entire clubhouse Hennings, which is a fantastic mm -hmm. and very expensive steakhouse in Chattanooga. And so back in your minor league days when you guys had a major leaguer come back for a rehab start, who had the best spread post-game? Uh, Latroy done well. Um, he would usually do, he was there for two or three stints, but he would usually do like an outback or something like that. A fancy, a fancier restaurant, but probably the best one I ever had was in Memphis. We were, and I cannot remember his name for anything. I can remember his interpreter's name, but, um, <laughs> he was a Japanese guy and he came in he wanted to, he wanted to take us to a Japanese restaurant. He took the entire bullpen, but probably the nicest restaurant i've ever been to japanese steakhouse anything you want to say and he bought us whatever we wanted we ordered it was food i'm telling you it was food everywhere 
<laughs> and uh, it was probably the best post game that we ever had because he took us away from the clubhouse. I mean, you you can only do so much in a clubhouse buffet style. He took us, and we had we had a meal. So uh, it was good. His interpreter had a little too much sake. <laughs> uh, I do remember that. So he walked through back through the middle of Memphis downtown Bill Street. Kosuke was his name, so he was. It was quite quite amusing. So I don't know which was the best part of the meal or watching him do that, but it was all fun, all good. Who were some of the best talents that you were able to play around? You know, you we talk about Gallardo, we talk about Hawkins in the minor leagues. You were with Chris Davis, Matt Gamble, Corey Hart, Jonathan Lucroy, Matt Laporta. Mm-hmm. Who were some of those guys that really stand out to you? That you know, when you first saw him, you thought this guy's special. Gamble was the uh, Matt Gamble was the best hitter. I mean, throughout any, I mean, Braun, Braun is, is super special as well, but just pure, pure hitter. Matt Gamble was the best hitter I was ever around. Just the, it was a different sound off his bat. He didn't get fooled a lot. And when he done, when he did, he still find found a way to get the bat hit on the ball. He put the barrel on the ball a lot of times. And I seen him hit some balls that, man, how's this dude? He, he wasn't a big guy. He was six, two, two ten, but he was just, he had a, what his swing was just pure. And he he was special. Um, pitching wise, Kyle Loesch was one of the one of the ones in the big leagues that that I really kind of tried to mimic a little bit. We'd use the same game plans, a lot of the same stuff, but he had a better way of using what he had. And uh, he came to me one time, and I threw a big slow curveball towards the end of my career. Well, not towards the end. Basically, that's what got me to the big leagues. But and I started throwing that, and he comes to me one day. And he said, "You know, I want to know how to throw that." And I thought, man, how awesome is a Kyle Loesch, who's been World Series, big leagues for 10 or 12 years, wants to know how I throw a pitch. But, you know, he he was just good. Um, got to warm up beside Aroldis Chapman in Cincinnati, just a special – I mean, he's throwing 100. I'm throwing 90 miles an hour, and I feel like I'm throwing 20. And it's just a special moment. Um, Alcides Escobar, probably hands down the best fielder um, i ever seen uh, the best all-around player, though, probably Braun. I mean, he, just, he, he could hit, he could throw, he could run. Um, he just—he was a special player. After you wrap up your career, you make one more appearance on television. Tell me about yeah. Mental Samurai with Rob Lowe, which looked like a game show, quiz show, along with a roller coaster ride. Yeah, I don't even like roller coasters. <laughs> um, it started a friend of mine, Samantha Samantha Bain. She was a, a childhood friend and still a friend today. Um, she sent me a message. There was a casting call for a, they need a professional athlete. Well, she threw my name in there. You know, probably like anything else we do, don't don't really think about it. And uh, they called me from California, matter of fact, and. Uh, the lady called me, and I can't remember her name, but the casting director calls me, and uh, she wants to do a FaceTime interview. I'm like, okay, when do you want to do it tomorrow? She's like, no, I want to do it right now. <laughs> and I said, well, ma'am, I'm in the middle of a hay field and a, and a tractor rolling round bells of hay. And she says, that's all right, just stop, and I will do it right now. So I FaceTimed her in the middle of my land over here in a, you know, in a tractor doing what I do. And so it just kind of – went on from there they had some tests you had to do and facetime and blah 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 and i'd done the final interview I actually went to our church because that was another quiet place i could find and and they had very secure wi-fi and i had to do a final audition i guess you would call it and so i done it didn't do very well i killed the rest of them done really well on all the questions and quizzes and 
all that kind of stuff, just random worthless information and playing baseball for as long as I have or did. It was, I had plenty of worthless information. So I was pretty decent at it. And so I done that one, didn't do well. Told my wife, I said, ah, probably will nothing come of it. Well, I'm, lo and behold, two days later, they called me and said, you're on the show. I said, what? I've failed the last said, We don't care. We want you on the show. We think you were nervous. Let's do one more and you, you'll be good. So we done another one. I done fine on it and everything was, everything was on. So I forget the dates, but I flew out to Hollywood and uh universal studio. Well, I don't want Hollywood universal studios. And, uh, we had a lot of preliminary stuff, a lot of, I guess, rules and regulations of the show. And then the next day, 6 a.m., we had roll call, dropped their phones at the door, and the game show started. So, unfortunately, I didn't get enough questions right for them to give me give a lot of the bio and stuff that they they done full interviews with everybody and background stories and blah blah blah, a bunch of stuff. After I had shown him, I basically showed him how to throw a curveball on national television during the show. And again, I, if I got a few more questions, we all might have seen it. But he come and found me after and just wanted to, you know, wanted to say, hey, it went the way it was. And But he really appreciated me doing that because he said, I'm a baseball fan. And, and I think he's got probably box seats down at, at Dodger Stadium and watches a lot of baseball. He said, I've never seen it that close to learn how to throw a curveball. So that was kind of cool. A lot of, you know, just another life moment, notch on the belt kind of thing. and But it was a good experience, too. Well, Donovan, I've kept you on here for about an hour. I said about forty-five minutes, but uh, and I will, I'll, I'll let you go right after this question. This one, I, I would kick myself if I if I didn't ask you this one. And I, I know you were talking about growing up, being a baseball mm-hmm. fan that you you always dreamed of being in the major leagues. And any yep. baseball fan knows Bob Euchre, Josh Underwood, Greg Seitz. I know what they would do is they would wait until you were in the bullpen. During the middle of a game, and then yeah. they'd say, "All right, now let's let's call Donovan and listen to it." Tell me yeah. about your voicemail story with Bob Euchre. If I had a nickel for every time somebody's called me and said, "Why did you answer?" I'd probably be rich. <laughs> me and you both be rich. No, that another one of those things that, that I learned throughout life. I, if you have an opportunity, the worst things people can say is no. And so Euchre, I got to know Euchre a little bit, and. He'd come down. He'd sit over there. Me and Jim Henderson, a very close friend, and we were kind of on the wall as you walked in the clubhouse. He would just stop over there and say, "What's up, kid?" And he started calling me country boy or something. <laughs> something. Now, he didn't call me Hick, but he called me something to the country boy. And uh, we got to know you. One day, I just went up to him. I said, "You random weird question." And he said, "Yeah, kid. What's up?" I said, would you be my voicemail? He said, what? He had an adjective, but he said, what do you mean? (laughs) I said, I'd like for you to record me a voicemail. I've heard you've done it before, and I I may get sent down tomorrow. So if you don't do it today, who knows if I'll ever get it. He said, yes, I'll do it. He said, yeah, I'll do it. Just give me a few days. I said, I don't know if I'll be here in a few days. (laughs) He said, you'll be all right. Just say that. You'll be all right. So a month or so rocked on. I'm like, man, I'm going to miss the opportunity. Some guys are coming back off the DL and stuff. I was like, well, I'm going to miss the opportunity. I was throwing well, so I thought I had a good chance. But anyway, so one random day, we're playing They were playing Miami in Milwaukee. He comes down before the game. He says, can I have your phone during the game? I said, yes, you can have my phone during the game. Love for you, too. And he said, well, it'll be back in your locker when the game's over. I said, okay. 
And so, of course, I couldn't wait. I was I was down that day. I wasn't going to throw. And so I couldn't wait to get back in there to see what he had done. I get back in there, I had 16 missed calls. <laughs> and I thought, whose number? Whose number is this? And it was Euchre's number. He called my phone 16 times after he had recorded each voicemail. He had done it like four or five times. I later found out. And he recorded that entire voicemail. That's the voicemail, actually, not to ruin it for people, but that voicemail actually didn't happen. He made that up as we went. <laughs> That, that those events, as far as me striking out Phillips and Votto and Bruce to get out of a bases loaded jam to win the game, actually didn't happen. But I didn't care. All I knew was a Hall of Fame broadcaster that was a legend on the movies Major League and was my my radio announcer for the Milwaukee Brewers had recorded a voicemail for me and I didn't care what it said. Donovan Hand came into the game with the bases loaded and nobody out. He has struck out Brandon Phillips and Joey Votto. He's taken Jay Bruce to a 3-2 count. Tying run at third. Winning run out at second. Bases still loaded for Cincinnati. Donovan Hand from the stretch. Here he comes. He struck him out swinging and this one is over. How about that one for Donovan Hand? He came on with the bases loaded. He strikes out the side and the Brewers win the game. Donovan Hand is out too. If you want a return call, leave your name and number. If you don't, leave your license plate. But the last part of it, leave your license plate, was it made it all. That was him to a T. He spent a lot of time in the clubhouse and he would uh He'd come down and tell stories during rain delays. or he, he was in the clubhouse every day. He was a baseball guy. That's just, and he'll tell you that. He actually said that on the thing they done on uh, MLB Network. So that was a, a special moment. And people's asked me, why haven't, why haven't I taken it off? And I'm like, why would you take it off? And they said, well, we ain't thought about that. Because it's been since 2013. So seven years, that's been my voicemail. Now, some people hate it. People that call me that don't know me say a lot of people was – farming stuff and call wanting this kind of they hate it because they gotta listen to a minute and a half or two minute voicemail leave me a 10 second one but but for the most part i've had very very good reviews about it thank you so much for coming on today i know i kept you longer than i said but this was a fantastic conversation i i'm a baseball guy and so i could i could sit here and talk baseball all day but i know you've got some hay to bail up and i know you've got a bunch of stuff going on down at the ranch and so i'll let you get back to it but again thank you so much for coming on with me today i I really enjoyed it thanks for taking the time 13 years later it's a it's a special special thing to be back on and hope whoever listens in will enjoy enjoy our conversation and maybe we can do it again sometime appreciate it a lot okay thank you Tyler. That'll do it for this week's edition of Behind the Beak. I hope that you and yours are healthy, and I will talk to you again next week. I'll be back Tuesday with a brand-new episode and another guest. With that, I'm Tyler Brown saying thank you for listening, and go Gamecocks. This has been Behind the Beak, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. Look for new episodes each week or browse the archives on the Apple Podcast app or by visiting jsugamecocksports.com. For more on Jacksonville State Athletics, visit the official website of the Gamecocks, jsugamecocksports.com, and follow JSU on social media by searching at JSU Gamecocks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.